It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question, veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law with Todd Marquardt, your host. Uh, we're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer on Apple Podcasts and uh, TalkLawRadio.com. Our sponsor today is Marquardt Law Firm. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, tax-protected inheritance plans, new businesses, and old businesses, which might have issues with contracts, corporations, LLCs, FLPs, and we can represent those who are facing problems from lack of planning, like in courtroom trials or guardianships or probate. Our other attorneys, Daniel Palmer and Alex Vollmer, assist me in those endeavors as well. The State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and the State Bar wants attorneys to inform the public about the law. But because legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, and because laws are ever-changing, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only, and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with professional individual advice. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing, for not doing your will. Please help Dr. Terry Marquardt and me give good information to the listeners about optometry today. Please help us to use the gifts and talents that you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Today our show is about optometry. Our guest, who has uh, over four decades of experience in optometry, my dad, Dr. Terry Marquardt, is going to inform us. Dr. Marquardt, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Todd. Thanks for the invitation to share this information with you and your public. Well, I know that the public might not have many questions about the legal aspects of optometry, but I wanted to take this opportunity to interview you on the air so that uh, I know your history, (laughs) and if I forget, I can listen to it again. Oh, well, that's a good reason. (laughs) So uh, start from almost the beginning. Tell us about your education. Um, I started college at the University of New Mexico in the pre-med program, and I was there for uh, until 1970. 
And then I uh, was accepted to the Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee. And I attended the Southern College of Optometry. I uh, received a doctorate from that institution and went into private practice. Along the way through my education, I uh, uh, went to Memphis State University and completed some undergraduate uh, courses uh, so that I uh, achieved a bachelor's degree in addition to the doctorate degree. Um, after uh, optometry school, I uh, uh, took some specialization uh, residencies and fellowships and um, uh, achieved a, a fellowship in uh, contact lenses uh, sponsored by Bosch & Lohm. So let's talk about that just for a minute because I, I always um, thought that that was pretty neat and special that you had a fellowship and you were doing special work on contact lenses and you had to write a, a paper that was published and peer-reviewed and all of that. So tell us about that experience. Yeah, I uh, was selected um, uh, uh, as one of 10 throughout the nation to receive that fellowship. And um, I performed research for Bosch and Loam and uh, researched contact lenses. Uh, at the time, there were some problems with contact lenses, uh, particularly at night. Uh, patients would uh, perceive flare and glare from their lenses and from the lights. Uh, and so I researched a lens called the uh, frosted contact lens to see if actually frosting the peripheral curves of the lens would improve uh, night driving. And uh, my results were uh, about half of the uh, subjects uh, reported an improvement and about half of the subjects uh, reported no change. So it was not a significant uh, uh, improvement going through that process, but what it allowed the contact lens industry to learn from that was that this was probably not an efficient way of, of solving the problem of flare and glare, and uh, so they could pursue other avenues. Like the soft contact lens, that came later, right? The soft contact lens uh, was uh, uh, established and approved by the Food and Drug Administration um, upon my graduation of uh, optometry college. And um, I, I continued in the research field. I was a, uh, a clinical investigator for the Food and Drug Administration on the development of the extended wear lens, a lens that you could sleep in at night. Okay. So before you did that work and before the FDA approved the extended wear lens, it was recommended that you take your contacts out. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, over four decades of uh, clinical practice, I still recommended to my patients that they take their lenses out at night. Um, the, even though the marketing uh, aspect of the contact lens and even though those contact lens companies ha have – uh, accomplished approval for their lens to be slept in, it's still much safer to not sleep in your contact lens. Um, you're just That's just an ad additional opportunity for infection and trauma to the eye. Okay. Well, you've heard it here. Uh, take your contacts out before you go to bed. <laughs> okay. Tell us about um, how you've been able to keep up with these 
changes over the decades. What's your strategy? Well, <laughs> the strategy is 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 pretty simple. It's just uh, never stop learning. Um, uh, as medicine evolves, as optometry evolves, as contact lens uh, developments evolve, there's always something new to be learning and to be on the cutting edge of uh, delivering that type of care. Um, uh, doctors have to continue their education. Um, and I uh, spend over uh, 20 hours a year um, achieving that. You went to some other schools also to keep up. Yeah. What, what were those? Well, you may remember uh, when you were a little boy, you said, Dad, where did you go to college? And I told you, well, I started at the University of New Mexico. I went to Memphis State University. I went to Southern College of Optometry. I went to the University of Houston. I went to Pennsylvania College of Optometry and uh, attended uh, Bascom-Palmer Institute of the Eye. And so that's a world-famous institution in Florida. And so with all of that education, um, uh, we were uh, – my brother – uh, was talking about um, how smart I was. And my one brother, who uh, uh, was uh, coach of the championship baseball team in Texas, he told me that uh, the longer you go to college, the dumber you get, Terry. And my other brother, John, he said that, um, uh, yeah, you you go to a lot of uh, classes, but um, um, I'm not, not sure whether you get better educated or whether you get smarter, uh, but at least you're getting the education. It's good to keep up with all those things, and even if you know it, it you refresh your memory and you learn it all over again, it just uh, gets into your mind better. You know, over the past uh, 30 years um, in medicine, uh, the knowledge has just exploded with new drugs, new treatment availabilities, uh, not only in the eye care field, but in, in general medicine also. Well, we're going to talk about all the developments, uh, the changes in the law that gave optometry the opportunity to uh, do more and more medical care to the eye, uh, probably a after the break. But I wanted to talk a little bit uh, more about your background as you were getting started. Um, you started practice uh, with your dad, right? I, I did. Uh, 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 my first uh, two years I spent in practice with my dad. And um, uh, we had pretty different ways of practicing optometry. Um, uh, I uh, was uh, approached it from more of a, um, of a medical model, and he approached it more from a uh, vision-type specialization. And uh, uh, what my plan was for uh, him to specialize in, in vision therapy and for me to take the contact lens and medical side of uh, eye care. And he, he kind of liked doing everything himself, too. He liked the contact lenses, and he wanted to continue to do that. So after a couple of years, um, uh, he encouraged me to uh, um, follow my dreams and, and start my own practice. And uh, I started a practice in Rio Doso, New Mexico. Yeah, that was a, a fun place to live. I remember that uh, the school will let the kids out 
uh, Wednesday afternoons and on Fridays, and we could go ski. It was a great opportunity for families to spend time together on Wednesdays um, on the on the ski mountain, and I took every opportunity to uh, uh, spend that time with my family. And then after that, you started an, another office in Alamogordo, right? I did. I, the Alamogordo is about 45 miles away from um, Rio Doso. And so I uh, uh, added a branch office in Alamogordo to my uh, Rio Doso practice. And actually, uh, I also uh, was a civilian doctor at the uh, military hospital at Holloman Air Force Base during that time also. Okay. Uh, after we get back from the break, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your training and, and your work with glaucoma. Uh, that's a, a disease of the eye that needs special treatment. Yes, that's uh, 4% of the population after 40 will develop glaucoma. And so it's a significant uh, uh, disease that needs uh, lots of attention. Okay, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you recently moved to Texas from out of state, your current will, trust, and power of attorney may need to be reviewed and updated. Wills and powers of attorney are state-specific, so it might be a good idea to meet with a Texas attorney. Marquardt Law Firm is the go-to firm in San Antonio for wills, trust, and powers of attorney. They'll develop a strategy to tax-efficiently protect and preserve your assets, reduce family conflict, and maximize government benefits. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. 210-530-4278. Protect what's yours with Marquardt Law Firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt. We're here with uh, my dad, Dr. Terry Marquardt, talking about optometry and the changes over four decades of his practice. And uh, we were just getting into glaucoma. So tell us how you got started learning about glaucoma and then what you did after to start treating it. You know, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, about the time I was uh, completing my optometry education and training, uh, the soft contact lens was being developed and coming out. Uh, At that same time, uh, an effective treatment for glaucoma was just developed. And um, before that, we were treating glaucoma, but not very effectively. We were kind of hamstrung to... uh, have an effective treatment and prevent it from progressing. But with the development of a, a, a drug called uh, Timolol, uh, we were able to control the progression and reduce the pressure within in the eye. Um, as far as my education and training in that, as the drug was being developed, um, uh, optometry's education and training was being expanded. Um, I attended the University of Houston for a specialization in glaucoma and completed that training, and uh, uh, that that uh, treatment plan or that expanded role for optometry was included in uh, in my license uh, at that time. Was that one of those law changes that expanded 
the medical procedures that optometry would do? Yeah, as you as you know, or may or may not know, uh, um, medicine and the professional fields uh, are controlled by the legislature. And um, so if there's a change in the treatment plans or uh, treatment availabilities or surgical availabilities, um, the, uh, the professional laws have to be updated. And so as, like, like you just indicated, that um, as education and training expands, then legislation also has to accompany that. For the listeners that are somewhat confused uh, about all the different professionals that help treat and the eye and eye disease and, and help us see better, will you uh, just give us some background on uh, the typical professionals that would be involved in eye care? Yeah, sure. Um, in uh, Prior to the 1970s, um, there were the three basic um, uh, divisions. Uh, one was uh, a medically trained eye surgeon, and then and he did, performed eye surgery and treated the eye medically. Um, prior to the 1970s, optometry was trained in vision correction. Uh, they they performed uh, eye examinations to rule out disease, and they prescribed uh, uh, prescriptions for glasses and contact lenses. And then the third role was the optician who filled the prescription of the surgeon and the optometrist uh, for glasses and contact lenses. Okay. And the division of, of labor there um, – had to be uh, redivided, I guess, because uh, there there wasn't enough professionals in every area of the country to to serve everybody. Right. That's true. Um, uh, as as our population expanded, as uh, knowledge and development of new drugs and treatments came about, and new surgical procedures came about. Uh, the field of surgery was expanding. The field of medicine, uh, medical eye care was expanding. And so to, to be, be able to um, provide the best possible care to uh, the population, in, uh, especially in rural areas, was for the uh, surgeons to concentrate more on surgery and for the uh, optometrist, the eye doctor, uh, to concentrate on medical eye care of the eye, prescribing medicine for eye disease and vision correction. And then the optician continued to fill the prescriptions written by the, uh, the two doctors. Okay, good. And what was the, the next uh, big progression in optometry? Um, maybe right about 1985, well, as like we talked about, there were uh, new um, uh, medicines being developed mm-hmm. and expanding role uh, needed to be accomplished for diagnosing eye disease as well as treating that eye disease. And so in the uh, there were uh, pharmacology courses had to be expanded. And uh, in medical school and in optometry school, uh, pharmacologists uh, expanded the, mm, the number of hours that that training consisted of. And, and so those, those two things were incorporated into medicine and optometry. And there were expanded, uh, again, the legislation was expanded to um, uh, 
to follow with the education and training and to provide um, better diagnostic capabilities um, to the population. So going back to glaucoma, uh, you mentioned that's when pressure in the eye is too high, right? Yes. And um, the, the way that you find that out, uh, ex- explain how you diagnose that. Well, there's a, a basically three different uh, tests, and they each have they contribute to each other. One is the actual pressure inside the eye, which is measured. The other is uh, examining the optic nerve of the eye because that's where the damage from glaucoma takes place. So after an extended period of time, uh, there will be signs of damage to the optic nerve and. Uh, Uh, an eye examination uh, by the uh, uh, optometrist or the ophthalmologist will will uncover that. And the third way is a visual field test because as damage is done to the optic nerve, uh, the individual is losing their peripheral vision or their side vision. And so one of the tests is to measure peripheral vision or or side vision. Okay. So the the pressure test... In in modern times, that's when um, the machine shoots air into your eye. That's right? that's one of the tests. Um, it's one of the most unpopular tests among patients. <laughs> uh, another test is um, an anesthetic is eye drop is placed in the eye, and then a, a measuring device is also uh, placed on the eye that measures the actual pressure inside the eye. So there are a couple different ways of, of performing uh, that test. Um, uh, they all are, are pretty equivalent as far as to accuracy mm-hmm. um, and, and the medical standard. Uh, but um, uh, there are the air test is, is being replaced by more comfortable methods these days. Okay. Uh, and then you said the, the doctor would, would look, look into the eye and, and see the optic nerve. Is that when um, the doctor has uh, the flashlight and the, the magnifying glass all in one? <laughs> That's a, a, a pretty uh, basic explanation, but yes, mm-hmm. um, the, the eye is dilated so that the pupil opens up really, really wide and the doctor can get a good view of looking inside the eye. And uh, and then there's a couple different ways of doing that. One is with a, a biomicroscope and a magnifying lens that uh, is held up against the patient's eye so that uh, the doctor can see inside uh, using that uh, mi- biomicroscope and the lens. And there's another way of doing that. You may have seen uh, doctors with a kind of like a miner's headlamp. Uh, that they wear on their head and also another magnifying lens that allows the doctor to see all the way back to the back of the eye and the front of the brain. Wow, that's some pretty heavy um, diagnosing there. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Okay, Um, so the the field of optometry was uh, expanding through the 80s. What was the next uh, big development well, the um, uh, the the uh, laws were expanded uh, with the increasing need to diagnose all of these diseases, and so that was the first law change. This is basically was to uh, expand the um, uh, the opportunities to diagnose conditions of the eye, 
And then after that came um, expanded uh, uh, drugs and pharmaceutical agents that are used in the treatment of that eye disease. And as those expanded, uh, the laws had to be expanded, and uh, and the the doctors performing those uh, procedures uh, those were expanded. And so that's that was the next big movement in optometry and uh, change in the scope of practice. Uh, it came with that evolution of uh, expanded knowledge in those areas of medicine, as well as expanded education in that in those areas. And and that included like antibiotics and steroids and pain medication. Yeah, those were the 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 last ones to come on are 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 the ones that are uh, uh, most important as far as um, ability to relieve pain. Mm-hmm. And so those are uh, those were expanded, as well as the the requirement of education. Um, doctors are required to have a pain uh, threshold course every single year, uh, even mm-hmm. even if they're practicing um, sixty hours a week and uh, treating pain uh, every day. Uh, the the states have required that doctors continue to have uh, an education course on uh, prescribing and treating with uh, pain medications because of the uh, opioid epidemic that we're experiencing. Good. Well, I can't uh, fault the legislature for requiring more education. Safety is always good. Yeah. So we're going to take another break and we'll continue our discussion about uh, the changes in law and optometry and how optometrists have been able to uh, increase eye care over the decades. Uh, Just wanted to remind you we're on 930 AM The Answer. This is Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt. This is where uh, you get to learn what your legal issue blind spots are by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio with your host, Todd Marquardt. I'm here with Dr. Terry Marquardt, my dad, talking about optometry and the law and the changes of the law throughout the last 40 years of my dad's career. We've talked a lot about glaucoma and contacts and uh, the increasing role of optometrists to uh, use medication to treat the eye. Uh, What were some of the next changes that optometry started uh, helping with? Well, as as the population uh, uh, demographics changed in our country, uh, we found that most of the surgical specialties were gravitating toward the bigger cities, and uh, a, a lot of the rural areas, not just farmers, but smaller towns of thirty-five to fifty to a hundred thousand people, um, they were they were kind of being left out of the surgical group, and so. Uh, uh, 
conditions of the eye. Uh, for example, uh, people would be getting foreign bodies in their eye. Uh, uh, mechanics working on a car, a piece of metal would fly in mm-hmm. their eye. Uh, landscapers uh, would get uh, vegetation or branches or dirt in their eye. And sometimes uh, the, those uh, things had to be surgically removed from the eye. And so uh, in 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 uh, the expansion of the medical uh, care field, um, the the training of optometrists were expanded to provide those minor surgical procedures, and uh, people didn't have to travel a hundred miles to the ne- next largest city uh, to have a. a, a, a specialty trained eye surgeon mm-hmm. uh, just to remove the, the the debris from the patient's eye. That sounds pretty painful to have a, a piece of metal or something stuck in your eye. Um, after you pull that metal out, what what is the treatment like for that? Do you have to stitch it up or does it heal on its own? The The front surface of the eye, which is like a windshield on the car, it's the windshield of the eye, it's called the cornea. And the cornea is the fastest healing tissue in the body. So even though it's uh, abraded or lacerated or scratched, usually within 24 hours, it's almost totally uh, healed. So when you t- remove something from the eye, um, it, it is it is it can be painful having that in your eye, mm-hmm. and so using anesthesia, uh, you numb the eye like a dentist would numb your mouth before they work on it, and so the the, the numbing drops are used and the procedures performed, and now the eye can heal that the uh, the foreign body is is removed. Um, many times uh, the eye will be inflamed from that trauma and uh, the doctor needs to treat that uh, inflammation mm-hmm. uh, uh, with some uh, special eye drops. And then also um, uh, the danger of being infected since that's an open wound. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oftentimes uh, an antibiotic is prescribed to, to help with that. And then uh, the patient is uh, told to return the next day and so the doctor can evaluate that uh, the healing process is proceeding as normal and uh, and catch any uh, any any problems that may be uh, manifesting themselves. Okay, yeah, that's important. People need to get their uh, eyes fixed up by somebody. Yeah, and if uh, optometrists can uh, learn those procedures and and help in that way, that's great. Well, that's a common common uh, common education and training in the schools and uh, colleges of optometry today. Good. Any other changes that happened that you can remember? Well, as as again as medicine and optometry and all forms of medicine uh, were expanding and evolving, um, uh, lasers were coming into common use mm-hmm. and uh, that included the eye also and so there are there are procedures uh, to correct vision with laser uh, there are cataract procedures that are being done now with laser after cataract surgery there are um, uh, com- uh, normal changes that occur that laser can uh, help improve the vision if they happen to occur after the the uh, cataract surgery. And then also um, uh, lasers uh, were used to treat um, retinal disease. 
um, and uh, lasers are used in the treatment of uh, glaucoma. So all of those things uh, were the benefit of uh, the development of laser procedures. And as the procedures are developed, then those, uh, that knowledge and that information is expanded in schools and colleges of medicine and optometry uh, so that the, uh, the residents and the uh, students are uh, trained in those procedures. So you've been learning about lasers too, right? That's true. Uh, uh, in New Mexico, uh, the New Mexico passed uh, in the uh, 90s uh, legislation to authorize um, uh, optometrists to, to uh, aid the uh, surgically trained uh, medical specialists uh, in providing uh, laser care for the, the populations. And um, that legislation, as I said, was passed. Uh, the governor did not sign that bill, so it did not go into law in New Mexico. However, um, uh, Mississippi and uh, uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and Arkansas, um, uh, many states are, and Oklahoma are expanding their laws so that, uh, again, uh, the greater population can have the benefit of their eye doctor if it happens to be an optometrist to provide uh, the uh, assistance to the medical community in that way. So you you know all about it, but uh, states in which you practice didn't authorize that type of work. Yeah, you're right. I'm licensed in uh, Texas, New Mexico, and Colorado. And uh, to tell you the truth, I, um, I see I see so many patients every day uh, for over 46 years. I mean, I am I am incredibly busy. Uh, that I really wouldn't – even if uh, I had uh, expanded into that role, I wouldn't have had time for it. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe it will go that way because uh, another passion that you've had uh, was just giving sight to the, to the blind. I, I remember you telling us that as kids um, and – not just through surgical procedures, but by helping ordinary people with their glasses and contacts. Well, you're right. Um, optometry is known as uh, the first line of defense against blindness. Eighty percent of all eye exams in the United States are performed by optometry, and therefore they see the greatest uh, bulk of, of eye care patients and provide the greatest amount of, of care. And so... Eventually, you had built up such a resume in eye care and continuing education that um, they awarded you with a, a special diplomat. What is that about? Well, as uh, in medical specialties, uh, uh, if you're going to um, uh, have hospital privileges or as you, if you're going to specialize in a specialty in medicine, uh, you're required to, uh, to have additional training and also additional testing. And so I, um, uh, as I expanded my specialization and my training, um, I uh, achieved uh, the status of diplomat by the American Board of Optometry. Uh, what's required in that is an additional um, 100 hours of education and training every three years and as well as uh, testing every year to up, uh, 
keep that uh, certification um, updated. That's great. So you've reached the pinnacle of optometry. Did you do any teaching? Um, I was uh, uh, appointed as an adjunct professor to uh, Northwestern University um, uh, and the optometry college there. And uh, they're known for their um, their laser department and their laser training for their optometrists. And I uh, I did pr- perform that function for several years. And um, it was like you said, it's it was uh, uh, something additional to the normal practice of optometry that that I was asked to provide, and I was I was happy to do that. Well, thank you for telling us about your history and your education and all those changes in optometry. Uh, We're going to take another break, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk about legacy because uh, Marquardt Law Firm focuses on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans. And we always ask our guests about legacy, and so we're going to take a short break. Uh, Be right back. If you recently moved to Texas from out of state, your current will, trust, and power of attorney may need to be reviewed and updated. Wills and powers of attorney are state-specific, so it might be a good idea to meet with a Texas attorney. Marquardt Law Firm is the go-to firm in San Antonio for wills, trust, and powers of attorney. They'll develop a strategy to tax-efficiently protect and preserve your assets, reduce family conflict, and maximize government benefits. Call today to schedule your no-cost legal consultation. 210-530-4278. Protect what's yours with Marquardt Law Firm. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. This is your host, Todd Marquardt, on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Uh, We're also on Apple Podcasts, and you can listen to shows that I've done in the past. I've got uh, 66 other shows uh, where you can go to talklawradio.com and listen to those. Or you can find me on Facebook or Twitter if you want to leave me a message If you have any ideas about shows that you might be interested in, laws that you're confused about, uh, leave me a message or send me an email at host at talklawradio.com. That's H-O-S as in Sam, T as in Timothy, at talklawradio.com. Now we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Terry Marquardt, my dad, about his legacy what legacy would you say that you've learned from uh, those who have gone before you? Well, you know, uh, your granddad, my dad, uh, was a great leader. He's a great civic leader. He uh, he served uh, his uh, community uh, in many volunteer positions. He um, he was president of the Parent Teacher Association. He um, uh, coached youth league baseball, developed character in those kids. He um, also started the Lutheran Church in, in our small town of Alamogordo, New Mexico. He um, also uh, volunteered his time to education and educators uh, to help uh, 
struggling children with their academics, with their schoolwork, and he helped with that. And uh, so uh, as I was growing up, when I was a little boy, um, those things were just just common. That they, they, it's just the way that uh, we learned uh, was normal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, one night at the dinner table, uh, uh, he was there was a phone call, and it was um, uh, someone from the Republican Party asking him to uh, uh, run for the state senate. And he he told them, thank you very much, uh, but um, I'm really busy with my family, and I'm really busy with uh, helping the, the school children in our community. And so um, uh, uh, thank you for the honor, but I, I'm going to have to decline. And I remember saying, man, if uh, if anyone ever calls me and asks me to do that, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and uh, another time, we, again, we were at the dinner table. I was a little boy. And the phone rang, and it was for him, and he answered the phone, and uh, they were asking him to um, serve on the State Board of Optometry in New Mexico. And uh, he said, you know, thank you very much. I'm honored by the the inquiry, but um, I'm really very busy with my family and my children, my church, my community, and um, I'm going to focus my attention on those endeavors and uh, there's someone more politically astute uh, than myself might be a better choice and so again I sat there at that dinner Mm -hmm. table listening to that conversation and I said man if I'm ever asked to serve on the state board I'm going to do it and uh, so those were lessons learned as I was growing up I remember uh, having that same question uh, when you were uh, a state representative for granddaddy at probably the same table. <laughs> I asked him, why didn't you ever run for state representative? And his answer to me was a, a little bit shorter. He just said the the most important things to me uh, were my family and my faith. And that didn't fit in uh, with what I was doing at that time. I was just focused on those two things and I always remembered that. Um, I guess that was uh, the Holy Spirit talking to me through him uh, to make that those things important in my life. Well, you're right. He was laser-focused on those two things, family and faith. And because he was, um, he made a large difference in a lot of lives, including yours and mine, um, because he was focused on those things. So... You did get those calls. I did get those calls. <laughs> I did serve. Uh, I was appointed by the governor to the State Board of Optometry, and I served in that ca- capacity as president of the state board and secretary of the state board. Um, I also uh, was asked to run for the state legislature, and as a matter of fact, uh, I was elected because of the help of my two boys who campaigned for me. And uh, uh, reluctantly, I might say at first, because they were afraid of, uh, as a a nine-year-old, going up to somebody's door and knocking on it and and having to speak to them. (laughs) But I think it was great training for character and and, in developing a radio show host. Yeah, yeah, you got a point there. Okay, so after or in addition to serving uh, the State Board of Optometry and 
the state legislature, you served at, in the community as well through uh, baseball uh, coaching and Lions Club and, and lots of other things like that, too. Uh, so do you think um, Granddaddy uh, made an impact on you in that way? Yeah, of course. Um, it, and it and part of it, it wasn't all altruistic. I mean, it wasn't just that he was doing it for the community. He was doing it for us, too. Um, uh, he wanted to be our coach. He wanted to spend that time with us. And he wanted us uh, to have the benefit of uh, learning uh, the technology of baseball uh, from him. And uh, so uh, we were uh, we were proud to do that, and uh, he was successful in that. Uh, he produced an all uh, American at the University of South Carolina, my brother, as well as a major league draft pick. And uh, my other brother coached uh, uh, college baseball in Tennessee. And uh, as we said earlier, he won the Texas State baseball championship. And uh, as for myself, I played baseball, but I went a little uh, longer in college and uh, developed uh, along the medical field. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we, we've learned a, a great legacy from Granddaddy. Um, what do you think or what do you hope that your legacy will be for us? Well, um, for my family legacy, uh, it's uh, confirmation in college. My goal was that my children complete confirmation in the church and attend college. And um, uh, God blessed all of us, and, and that happened. And so that's my family legacy I thought was very important to me, and it's important to you and your brother. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my professional legacy, um, uh, I, by my training in optometry and in medicine, um, I was able to provide the first line of defense to the population against blindness, um, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, I was a- able to provide humanitarian services. Um, uh, one of the recognitions that I received was, was from the Vision Service Organization, and they uh, honored me with their humanitarian award. Um, also, uh, the children that uh, I learned uh, uh, from my dad, how to help children in school and academic endeavors, children who were struggling in school, I was able to help some of them through their vision correction, and they were uh, uh, allowed to uh, achieve in school. And uh, those are the legacies that I learned from my dad, and uh, I was blessed by God to be able to uh, to perform that for for my uh, constituents yeah i remember that um he was always he had a poster in his office on one of the doors uh, about the development of of children and um you know someone might think that that's strange to see in an eye doctor's office but he he was focused on the visual aspect of how how children can develop and how that helps with their brain and and their thinking. Um, I I learned later that uh, he was working on developing a desk that was the right distance away from your eyes, so that children could focus uh, the the most efficient way at school. 
Do you remember that? I, yeah, and it, your key word there was most efficiently. Um, uh, you know, there are you, you can get the task done, but there's different ways of, of no matter what the task is, whether it's hitting a baseball or whether it's uh, uh, flying a jet aircraft or um, reading in school. Uh, there are optimum uh, distances and optimum uh, availabilities and ergonomic um, uh, environmental things that if you if you create the ideal scene, then performances are improved. And so, yes, he was working on, on that. Yeah, it was really neat to, to go to his office and, and see those things. He always had uh, different contraptions to help. <laughs> Yeah, well, you they were contraptions to you, to him. It, they, they were scientific and medical instruments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, just simple things like the balance beam and, uh, you know, diff- balls with strings on them. And um, you, they, they call that vision training. Vision right? training and therapy, yes. And you did some of that, too. I did, especially uh, with athletes. Um, I worked with the high school athletes and trying and their coaches uh, in trying to enhance the performance on the athletic field, yes. And, and we know that that's true because uh, Mark McGuire, one of the sluggers for the Oakland Athletics, uh, gave a great testimony about how um, improving his vision helped him hit more home runs. Yes, he, he does credit optometry and his optometrist for uh, improving that. As a matter of fact, that's that's why I went to optometry school is because I wanted to be the team optometrist for the New York Yankees. And when I completed my optometry training and I wrote the letter to their medical department at the uh, New York Yankees, uh, the optometrist uh, responded and said, thank you for your interest. Uh, he was glad to see that I was interested in uh, uh, sports optometry, uh, but that uh, the positions at the New York Yankees were taken. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. Um, you know, I, I learned also um, that Uncle Myron, your brother, um, valued the ability to see the baseball he said that he could see uh the directions that the that the the ball was spinning by by watching the uh the stitches on the ball uh, f- uh that's true uh myron what is a great student of the game and that's why he won the texas state championships uh, but he, uh, when he was playing, he, uh, through vision training, developed the skill to pick up the rotation of the ball directly out of the pitcher's hand. Mm-hmm. And the sooner you can see that rotation, the sooner you know what that ball's going to do, the sooner you can make a decision and, and uh, react accordingly. And he had the, the record for the most triples at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. Yes, and and actually uh, nationally he was ranked uh, third in the nation for triples. Uh, At the same time, my other brother John was ranked second in the nation for home runs. Wow. Well, we we certainly have a a family legacy of baseball, of education, of uh, faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so uh, there's just a little bit of time left. I, I wanted you to say something about 
your faith. How did your faith uh, influence you in your vocation and in your role as a father? Well, you know, Todd, um, uh, in thinking about this legacy question, I thought about it. And one thing I realized is that every day I pray in my prayer that I, I, I be allowed to make a difference in someone's life. I want to make a difference in lives. And God has blessed me by answering that prayer. I've been allowed to help people. I've been allowed to uh, make a difference in lives, and I pray that I will continue to be able to do that and, and receive God's blessings in that way. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. You're a great host. <laughs> That's it for today. Uh, stay tuned for next week. <laughs>